The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. Hello and welcome to the History of Castlebar podcast. I'm Noel Campbell. And I'm John Healy. Each week we'll be discussing a selected chapter from our book, The History of Castlebar, which is available online from mayobooks.ie or in store in the Castle Bookshop. This week we'll be discussing one of uh, John's chapters, which is education. Yeah, no, uh, Noel, well, it, it, this chapter covers a lot of uh, educational background to Castlebar from the primary schools, secondary schools, vocational schools, uh, Western care schools, special schools, Gale Scalina, Educate Together, the development of the ATU as it is now, the controversy over the provision of, of an RTC in the first place, and then on to vocational education and the development of David College from what was once the technical school. You know, I, th- I think this, this recently, I suppose, and when I say recently, the last 50, 70 years, the state gets a lot of stick for having too close of a relationship with the state. But in terms of education and, and going back to uh, earlier times. That wasn't always the case. There was conflict between church and state in terms of delivering education. There was indeed. There was indeed. And if we go back to, well, if we take the starting point, say the 1800s, prior to that you had the penal laws. There were no Catholic schools. Uh, Catholic teachers were subject to persecution. Parents couldn't send their children to a Catholic teacher. Catholic schools were, were, were out. That changed with the relaxation of the penal laws in the early 1800s. For some time after that, you had what were called the head schools. Well, both before and after that, the head schools are secret schools, if you like. We had one in Castlebar here up near the, the green uh, in the loft of, a, of, of an old premises where a man called Patrick Canton was the principal of a school there. And that went on until 1831 when national education became organised. There was no national education system until 1831. So what you had was a selection of private schools and the Catholic Church did open a school in 1820 or so. Father Egan opened a school in Chapel Street. But it wasn't until 1831 when education became regularised and a Department of Education took over running of national schools, funding of national schools. It was from that really that the controversy started between church and state, if you like. The state insisted that religious education would be carried out strictly to guidelines laid down by the state. There would be scriptural education in the schools, there would be religious doctrine, but all of this would be strictly laid down under Protestant rules, if you like. Archbishop McHale, who was the the Archbishop of Tuam for, I suppose, the best part of 50 years, was completely opposed to this and fought with the department at every turn. But of course, they had the whip hand. You see, if you didn't agree with the department, you lost your funding. So McHale, rightly or wrongly, decided at one stage that he'd withdraw all his schools from the patronage of the department, which was fine, but it meant that the local population had to make up the cost of building, the cost of teachers' salaries and everything else. And that went on until his death in 1881, when McEvely, Archbishop McEvely succeeded him. A much more pragmatic man, McEvely was, decided that there wasn't much point in looking a gift horse in the mouth for the sake of religious education. So he brought the schools back into the system. Does that seem unusual? It sounds like McHale was running it for quite a long while, successfully. 50 years nearly. But as a successor decided to go back to to taking the the state money. Successful to a degree, but you have to remember that this was in the middle of the famine when there was no money. You know, people didn't have money to pay priests or to pay schools or teachers. So as a result, the level of education in the Diocese of Tuam was much lower than it was in other parts of the country where 
Bishop Swerdent as strict mm. about taking taking the state chilling. And that changed, of course, as I say, when, when McEvely took over in 1881. McHale's solution was, for that was to bring in the religious orders who would do it for nothing. So that's why the Sisters of Mercy came to Castlebar well, very early in, the, in that century. They arrived in 1845 at the invitation of the of the bishop, set up school in Rock House in Rock Square, which sadly is now demolished in a, an act of vandalism, I'd say, overnight, one night. They set up St. Angela's National School there. It was still outside the system, of course, at that stage, but it was very successful and they were successful and they were good at their business. They knew how to go about it until 1881, when immediately Dr. McEvely took over the nuns decided that they'd build a new school, have it funded by the department and have the teachers funded. So they built a new St. Angela's at the rear of Rock House, which is now, it is the social service centre now. If you look at it from the Castle Street Car Park, it, that is the old, the original St. Angela's National School. It was afterwards moved in 1961 up to the lawn and then... St. Joseph's Secondary School moved into where St. Angela's was and then St. Joseph's afterwards moved up to Lawn House, right. the Lucan headquarters or the Lucan, the Lucan residence. But yeah, it was, it, it was quite a, a fractious time between and I wonder, did McHale and when the sisters became involved, did they had to relinquish any of their control over the education? They were running the school, possibly uh, strapped for cash, no doubt, if they were dependent on... You know, uh, yeah, they were subject to to uh, subject to inspection fairly often from the department inspectors, but they seemed to have got on very well with the inspectors. Their reports, the annual reports, were of the highest quality. So, apart from the fact that the inspector found a crucifix hanging inside the door on one occasion and demanded that it be removed. That was the only one of the few incidents where there was a, a, a sort of ran foul of the of the system, if you like. But no, there was no, no, they never had a problem. They never had a problem with finding funding or getting extra teachers or adding to the curriculum or, you know, pretty much anything they wanted to do that were looked after by that. And were, were they, when you say crucifix, were they expected to run a, a, a kind of a non-religious teaching and it, yeah. stay clear of Catholic doctrine? Yes, oh. yeah. I think this was the inspector's fear that they said that this crucifix was a sign of Catholic Indoctrination. Yeah, or indoctrination. So he gave an instruction that by the afternoon the cross would have to be taken down off the back of the door, which it was. Yeah. And that was it. And up again the next morning. No more. No more was heard about it after that. Yeah. So so the religious orders had had an important role, I suppose, then in... in, uh, a very important role yeah, at national school. That was, of course, at national school level. The sisters came in the 1840s. The De La Salle brothers came in the 1880s at the invitation of Canon Lyons. In 1888, they arrived in Castlebar. But there was a complete turn of events because before the sisters came, the local Catholic, well, the Catholic business people mostly had asked the third Earl of Lucan to sell them a site. Now, not to give them a site, to sell them or to sell them a building to house the um, the Mercy Sisters. He refused. He said under the Emancipation Act, he was legally disbarred from providing any monastic establishment, as he called it. They challenged him on that. He proved that he was wrong. But then he said that even if he was wrong, he still wouldn't give You're it. You're not getting it. You're not getting it anyway. So... Behind his back, or while his back was turned, they bought Rock House, a group of them, maybe five or six wealthier 
Catholic people bought the Rock House and that became the, the headquarters of the Mercy Order. But yet, in the 1880s, when Canon Lyons went to the fourth Earl, he gave him the site for St. Patrick's National School in Chapel Street, he gave him the site for the monastery, and then he gave him the site for St. Gerald's Secondary School across the road. So it was a complete turnaround. I mean, there were... You know, yeah. the two earls were completely different. different He's people. making up for the for the father's for rights. the father for the father. Yeah, that, that was yeah. national school, John. What was the the origins of the secondary school system in the town? Yeah, the the, the sisters realised uh, that there was a need for a secondary school. Now they did have a kind of a private school down in the Grove, where Faulkner's oh, house Faulkner's, was in yeah. the Grove. They did have a private fee-paying school there, but they decided that, yeah, it needed a proper secondary school. Actually, the first out of the blocks there were, were the um, the brothers because they opened St. Gerald's in 1910. St. Gerald's College was opened in 1910, and from 1913 onwards, it just grew and grew. And the peculiar thing about it was that they were receiving, and this mightn't be very well known, that St. Gerald's were bringing, were receiving students from Donegal, Cork, Clare, Westmead under what were called King's Scholarships. So there must have been a fair recognition of the quality of the school if they were allowing scholarship holders to. And would they have a VED uh, boarding facility? They would. There they would have stayed with local, with local families, locals, yeah. right? For, yeah, for the for school a fee. itself didn't have. That's quite impressive now, yeah. yeah. Isn't it? It must have been a Wasn't well it known. Remarkable, uh, yeah. Good, good good system running from Chapel Good system, Street. yeah. And that went on and on. And of course, it, they relocated in 1971 to the Newport Road, as you know. That's where the mm. St. Gerald's is now. On the other hand, St. Joseph Secondary School was at the back of Rock House for a long time. The nuns bought Lord Lucan's estate and they used Lawn House as a boarding house for boarding students. So St. Joseph's was a boarding school and a day school as well, of course, but a boarding school. They used that for boarders. So the boarders would leave in the morning, come down near where the present gate is. There was a tunnel built under the road so that they wouldn't have to walk out onto the public thoroughfare and down at the side again. So there's, it's blocked off now. I was looking for it recently. I was up yeah. there, but I remember it well. Steps down uh, an underground I didn't know that. Yeah, walkway. Wow. So they'd come down so far and, and, and walk under. It finished as a boarding school in the 60s, I think. The school itself moved up from Rock Square up to the Lawn House, where it is now. So they were the two major yeah. secondary schools. But, uh, of course, you had uh, you, you also had um, the vocational school, because up, I should say that secondary school wasn't free at the time. There was no such thing as free secondary education. You had to pay. And even in my time, it was £30 a year. And how did that was, rate? Was that, was that? I mean, if you're talking about a number of children probably going to secondary school. That, uh, that was for St. Gerald's now, yeah. £30, which was expensive enough, Okay, you know, for yeah. at that time. Now, I'm talking about back in the 50s and early 60s. Mm. It was a f- fair bit of money to have to, to pay. So you didn't have free education as such. So the vocational the vocational school was opened in Newtown in 1933, I think that's when vocational education came in. Okay. And that provided free education for two-year courses for boys who wanted to learn a trade and didn't want an academic down the academic route. And for girls, they had commercial courses. So they were two-year courses. First principal was a man called Thomas O'Donnell, Largely forgotten now, but a well-regarded academic. He was an Irish scholar. He broadcast on Radio Airden about the life and writings of Douglas Hyde. 
He died fairly young at 1938 and he's buried in the buried up here in the old cemetery. There was a memorial raised in, to his honour in 1940. It's the Celtic Cross. It might be worth up at the graveyard. Known that in the graveyard, yeah. yes, to to his memory. It continued on in Newtown until. Joe Langan became principal in 1972 and Joe had a vision of upping the, the grades and making it a more acceptable mainstream school. So he oversaw the transition from a vocational school to David College, moved it out to Springfield. The students wore uniforms, first time in Ireland that vocational school students had uniforms and really made it a mainstream academic school, which it is today, of course, you know, something like 800 Massive. 800 students, I think, that was amount, you know. So that was a major breakthrough for what was the tech, as we called it, going up to technical school. But you had other, you know, you had other sort of peculiar schools. There was, I don't know know whether you heard of the Charter School for Girls. Um, Briefly, briefly. (laughs) It's an unusual name. It sounds very upper upper classish. Yeah. But it was anything but. Okay. it was a school for uh, set up in what is now Spencer Park near Duffy's Garage. It was set up in the early, probably the early 1800s, I think. And the idea was that they would bring in Catholic children, boarding schools, non-fee, of course. Uh, they'd bring in Catholic children and teach them to be proper Protestant children. Oh, very good, take, yeah. t- take away the popish faith of them and teach them the, the right way. Mm. That opened in... I think it was in around 1830, and it was a man called, I'm trying to think of the name, first man was John King and his wife. Sorry, yeah, it was set up in 1768, even way before that. A guy called I, King and his wife that ran it. Obviously, it was a dire place, you know, it yeah. was a complete shambles. And who, who, does this, who would King have been, just a, a man was who was... Uh, an appointee of the... Protestant of the Reformation, Church. yeah, the Protestant Reformation, yeah. well, one I of those that, groups. That school is on, on that old Skinner map, isn't it? I think it's called Skinner and oh, Taylor from the 1770s. Be, yes, that's right. Noted up around there. So it's quite, the, it was quite an old, that we're going back a wee bit now. Like. That's the one, yes. Yeah. So he would have been appointed, came in and he was to... Appointed from Dublin, yeah, by the Protestant Evangel- Evangelical Society because and, and it was they that were running the... And Catholic society. parents who probably wanted to better their children said... Wanted to better their children, yes. Yeah. So the children were boarded. They were taken away from their parents. There was no parental influence. Apparently, it was, the conditions were atrocious and even John Wesley came to visit it and he, you know, he absolutely gave it, you know, the thumbs down. He said it was filthy and abhorrent. And so there's a chance King was taking the money but not spending that, it. Yeah. That looked the way it right. was. Yeah, yeah. So King was replaced by a man called Moore and his wife. Things improved a little bit, but conditions were still fairly deplorable. And um, it was closed down in, I think, around 1812. And then it became a bridewell. Now, that might okay. appear on the maps as well. So the Bridewell being... It was possibly a Bridewell from the start, but the sound of it. <laughs> how, many, much, oh. how many children would have been in it, do we know? Was there any it was originally meant to be 60, but there were around 30 or 34 in King's time. Okay. Quite a few, so, I mean, it's... No running water, of course, or anything no, like that. No. The water had to be carried down from Saulian Lake. The kids had to do that by dragging down on buckets down to, to, down to the, the thing, you know? Yeah, that's a, a largely forgotten part, I think, of the of the history and then again, Noel, you had, you know, the work done by Western Care, which was phenomenal, yeah. you know, in 1966. It was set up by Johnny Mee, Michael Jewegan and Tom Fallon with the purpose of providing education for kids who had been 
uh, you know, ignored or yeah. you know, denied in existence even yeah. up to that. And they opened two schools. One was St. Bre- St. Anthony's was opened up at, up near Cahilduffy. They're on the left-hand side, the rear of, of uh, in a prefab. Right. And then St. Bridges, St. Anthony's for mildly handicapped and St. Bridges for moderately handicapped children, okay. you know. And they grew and grew. They were, you know, hugely successful, both schools. And they are today indeed, you know, they they. It just shows you the, the power of local campaigning. Exactly. And we saw it again uh, later on then when the RTC campaign began for third level education right. in the town. Today we have a, a university town. What was? Tell us a wee bit about the, the, the road from RTC to Ex- Mayo University. Well, it was a long, as you know yourself and you've written about it, it was a long road, you know. Um, it was probably the first kickoff was, was it 1979, I think, when the Chamber of Commerce held a public meeting and decided that they wanted to have an RTC, as they were called then. Mm-hmm. For the town. That was the first campaign. A lot of opposition from other towns. Westport said Castlebar gets everything. And Ballina said, why should why should Castlebar have this? You know? So there was a lot of... Were they running their own campaigns, I wonder, at the time? Uh, or was it just they didn't want... No, they didn't want it. Yeah. <laughs> Not that they wanted them in, uh, But they didn't want them in, in yeah. Castlebar. So... By 1981, that was 1979, by 1981, the Fine Gael government had given a commitment. And at the time, I remember Paddy O'Toole was the minister from Ballina and Paddy voted in favour of the RTC. And he was berated in Ballina for siding with Castlebar and letting down his own his own town. <laughs> so, But anyway, they got over that. Nothing much was happening. Progress was slow. By 1988, Fall were now in power by 1988 and announced that Five proposed RTCs, including Castlebar, would not go ahead. And of course, there was there was murder over Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. this, this really set the cat among the pigeons. And Mary O'Rourke, by way of softening the thing, offered outreach courses to the Chamber of Commerce. Not a full RTC, but outreach courses. That was shot down. Uh, the committee wouldn't accept that. And then, of course, the famous by-election in 1994, the RTC decided to go political. Paddy McGuinness, who was spearheading the campaign, ran. He didn't win the seat. It was the by-election caused by Porek Flynn's departure to Brussels. Beverly Flynn was the Fianna Fáil candidate, Michael Ring, for Fine Gael, mm. and Paddy McGuinness represented the RTC Independent. Uh, it was considered to be a shoe-in for Beverly Flynn, of course, her yeah. father's seat. But instead of that, Paddy's presence and his... his, his, his effect, yeah. So the seat went to Ring. He won the seat and has held it ever since. But... That appeared to have been the turning point, you know, it is it, it, it turned it, into the RTC yeah. and now has become, as we know, the, the ATU. So. It was very effective, that campaign, wasn't it? It I was. Suppose, no longer could they kick it down the street because this would cost actual seats. This would cost actual seats, You know, seats, and this yes. is, this is yeah. quite serious. Yeah. yeah, they knew that people were... Yeah. And it was a very well-run campaign, you know, and people put an awful lot of time and effort. As we know, Paddy McGuinness devoted an awful lot of his time and... Mm. I'd say his own money as well was invested in the mm. campaign, you know. Yeah, he had the secondary school children out as well, campaigning as yeah, well. Yes, very, yeah, it was yeah. Very, very and it countywide at that stage, you see. Mm. That was the thing about it, you know. Uh, you had branches of the committee everywhere, in every town and around at that stage. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a big win for... And now we're part of the town. larger complex of ATU. Now we're part of the larger con- complex of ATU. So a success so, story. Yeah. No doubt. John, thanks very much. I mean, there's a very interesting look back on, 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 on several hundred years of education in Castlebar. Yeah, well, it's a pretty thumbnail sketch. There's an awful lot more and lots of bits and pieces, but that's in the book, as we say. No. Thanks, so, John. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. 
Before we go to the ad break, we'll take a look at an ad from the past. And John, you've got an ad from the Connacht Telegraph from 1966. I have no idea. This is this is an ad for a shop called the Wool Boutique. It was located on the Mall or the Green, as it says here. To be corrected. Um, it was a woman called Sue Murphy opened this shop in the front room of her own house. Now, Sue, Sue is the mother of Tom Murphy and Fintan Murphy, our own townsmen. Uh, and she opened this business. It was Irish hand knits and it was enormously successful. My own recollection of it is around the 1960s of the tour buses pulling up outside, the Yanks going into the shop, placing their orders, buying everything and anything from Arden sweaters to clothes and caps and everything else. And Mrs. Murphy would then would take they'd pay for their goods, take their order, get back on the bus. Mrs. Murphy would then go in with the two boys that come home from school. They would be put packaging these things, addressing them off to Cincinnati and Florida and wherever. And the Parsons would be there when the Yanks were got back from their to, from their tour. But it was it was phenomenally successful. She had nearly a hundred knitters all over Ireland knitting knitwear to her design which she would then sell in the shop. So uh, I'll just read, this one came at Christmas in 1966. It's Irish hand knits are now hot couture. An extensive range of jackets, sweaters, skirts, hats, gloves, children's and baby wear, ideal as Christmas gives now on display. Come and see the beautiful Mayo crochet work in our collection. The Wool Boutique, the Green Castlebar. So that's just a throwback to, to 66. The Connacht Telegraph, serving the community since 1828 and now reaching 1.5 million people per month on our online and print platforms. As always, we'd like to hear from our listeners. Um, any comments or questions you might have, please do send them into historyofcastlebar at gmail.com and myself and John will do our best to uh, answer them. We have a question in from um, Anne, John, and Anne has asked, uh, more made a comment, I suppose, that there was jet planes apparently based, or jet plane based out of Castlebar Airport at one stage. Is, is there is there some truth behind that? There, well, there was, yeah, there was certainly one jet plane during the 1970s, 1980. It was owned by Dennis Ferranti, who was a millionaire businessman. Dennis Ferranti lived in Massbrook House, which is now the, well, I'm not sure is it now, but it certainly was in the property of Mayor Robinson. Mayor Robinson, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I think it might have been sold on since then. I'm not too sure. But yeah, Dennis Ferranti based his jet there and he had his own retained pilot. The pilot was Jim Donahue, who lived in Rathbone Drive. And he would actually fly all over the world from, from Castlebar and back in. You might have remembered even hearing it over the rooftops as it came back into yeah. To land. We were always told it was a it was Ferranti telling the the staff out in Massbrook that he was back. This is the way of him into Cape Town. And that jet, I remember the jet, and it was uh, it used that's to fly right. over the Ponton Road area, the Castle Bar, but it was an awful racket. That's and, right. Uh, I suppose yeah. this was a bit of a show as well. He used to come yeah. in quite low. I don't know if you get he away did. with it now. Yeah, I don't think you would. I don't think you would. But he did come in quite low, is right. And it was said that it was Jim Donahue telling his wife Maureen that. <laughs> to put on the dinner that they were home as well because that would have been you know back to back to where you lived yeah so it would have been that but yeah that was one of the high points of the of the airport as you know the airport was opened in 66 it was owned by the ryan brothers peter ryan jim ryan who went on to become 
Monsignor Horden's right-hand man and uh, their brother Hugh Ryan, who was a vet in, in Westport. It was a 2,000-feet runway, but in the end it proved not long enough. You see, it was bounded on one side, on one end by the railway line and on the other by the Brayfield Road. And was it was it always hoped to take on jets kind of the size of Franti's or was it always meant for kind of light later? It was meant for light, it was, yeah, yeah. But the county council decided then, you see, that in order to achieve its full potential, it should be able to take bigger planes. So a proposal was made that they would put a level crossing on the Brafey Road out there now where Tahir Tires is. So mm. when a plane would be landing or taken off, the gates would come down and it would be like a CIE crossing. Right. So now the runway could run from the railway line on one end out to Mo- the Monion Road mm. on the other, which would give sufficient for 50 or 60 seater planes to come in. The proposal went to the Department of... The relevant department, I suppose, the at the time. Department, yeah. yeah. So it was quite a serious uh, Oh, it proposal. was, yeah. 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 It, had give, it had got the OK from the County Council, but the Department of Aviation... Shot it down. And, and wouldn't have it. That, that's interesting. Fifty or sixty seaters. I mean, that's quite a lot. Was that would have been, be, there would have been big planes. And this yeah. is hoped to be a regular, a regular. Yeah, and you'd have Currents. chartered flights going from Castlebar to yeah. to wherever. I mean, I mean, the way the town grew, that's uh, right. it wouldn't be around if if it did go to that extent. It wouldn't be around today. That's surely. great. Yeah, it would have to be moved out. Yeah, possibly a pre pre runner to knock, but never got there. That's the thing. Well, what would have happened? Yeah, would knock yeah. have gone ahead if there had been yeah. a, a full length airport in Castlebar? You know, yeah. you'd, you'd begin to wonder. The Ryans divested themselves of the airport and Ferranti bought it because he needed a he needed a runway for his plane. And he let the bar part of it. So you had there were a couple of tenants. John Morden was in it at one stage, Joe Burke, and then Donald McAlin, Skinty McAlin, uh, a great character, and hosted numerous international flying days there, which were highly successful. Skinty had a good sense of humour. And he'd sometimes take people on a pleasure cruise. And he, he had his own plane, his own Piper Aztec. He'd take people for a trip, you know, maybe out over Clue Bay or down over Nathan. But one of his tricks was that when he'd have a small group, uh, as he'd fly over Nathan, he'd switch off the engines <laughs> and he'd announce that there was an emergency and that prayer was the only answer at this <laughs> stage to get to get home safely. So this would go on for a bit. He'd let the aircraft glide down towards Pontoon and then, you know, when he had them suitably chastened and everyone scared out of their wits, he'd switch on the engine again and come back in to land at the, <laughs> at the airport. So that was one of many, many stories told, told about Donald. Yeah, but that was, the airport closed in 2001. In fact, Donald was the last owner of the airport and it closed in 2001. It was sold, I think, to Crane Mosaics, if I remember rightly, as uh, an industrial estate. And that's where, you know, Monaghan cars are now and all those industrial buildings are there. But that was the story of, of Castlebar Airport from 1966 to 2001, I think, when it closed. Right. Thanks very much, John. That's uh, certainly we could do a show on, on Skinty McAlin, there's no doubt about it. Uh, we'll be covering more another chapter of our book, The History of Castlebar, next week. I want to thank our listeners, especially for joining us. And just to remind you that the book can be bought online at mayobooks.ie or in store in the Castle Bookshop. So for myself, Noel, good evening. And for me, thank you for listening. The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. The series is produced by me, Brendan Gilmartin. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review.